We'll start at the beginning. It is September 9th. We didn't meet last week uh, because of the holiday weekend and so forth. It always seems like a month when we skip a Sunday. But we are here. This is Lesson 38 in our continual study in Matthew. (coughs) Matthew chapter 5, for those of you who are just joining us this morning, perhaps for the first time. Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin this morning and hope to finish verses 19 and 20 which will end a particular section for us. And this whole, these past four verses have served as kind of an introduction to move us forward into what lays ahead as we continue to study Christ and the Sermon on the Mount. We've been through the Beatitudes. We've been looking at the Word of God in particular and what Christ Himself says about the veracity of His Word. So we're up again to Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Last week, we ended, of course, with verse 18, but I want to read that to you just to, just to bring you along since it's been a couple of weeks. Well, Christ says there in Matthew 5:18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. An entire lesson just on that one verse there as we looked at the Word of God and what Christ Himself was saying about the Word of God, it's eternity. That's what it is. It is absolutely eternal. It will always be there. His Word's always been there. And we saw the manifestation of His Word as it was in Jesus Christ. Now we have uh, the completed written Word. We don't have an excuse, the Bible says. We We don't have anything to hang our hat on for not knowing and not believing. We really don't because the revelation has been completed and we have it. So we focus upon the Word of God once again this morning looking at verse 19 in particular. We're going to finish up hopefully with these last two verses here, 19 and 20 today. Verse 19 he says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I took this verse just like I do all of them, and I go back and I start with the, with the first word that gets my attention. And of course, that's the word whoever, as we want to look and see who it's actually talking about. No one can escape the demands and direction of Scripture. It's plain here. But in this particular case... In this particular scripture, Christ is talking about people who are in the kingdom. Remember that. That's interesting as you look at this. He's talking about people who are in the kingdom. But there's some differences with folks there. And this causes us to look at our walk, does it not? It causes us to look and to reevaluate, if you will, our love for Christ. It causes us to look and see whether or not we're really, truly, totally given over in obedience to the Word of God. Because the Scriptures would tell us that in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, there will be a noticeable difference. That's interesting to me as I studied this and and looked at this. Whoever, he says, but these people he's talking about are in the kingdom. And that next word then is an important word because it points to the previous scripture that I read earlier in verse 18, which focused upon the fact that, you know, not one, not the smallest letter or one stroke would disappear from the word. So it has to do, there's an evaluation, if you will. Follow me here. There's an evaluation on how we perceive and believe the word of God, the specifics of God's Word. And you might, it begs the question, well, do you even love it and care about it enough to spend time in it, to be specific about it, to know clearly what it means, not just in general, not just when we look at a verse and all of a sudden we discover, oh yeah, that's, that's what I was hoping it meant, so I'm going to stop right there and then just move on. We'll miss something. We'll miss something. So we always... There's always that battle going on even about receiving and believing the Word of God. Anything can come into our heart and mind to hinder whether or not we're clearly getting the message. 
It has to do with our intent, with our desire. It has to do with our obedience. It has to do with how we prioritize the desires of our life, the things that are important to us. And we're to seek His Word. We're to, we're, to, whoa. we're to long for it. And we have examples in the Word of God. And we're going to share some of those today where men stand as examples in longing for the Word of God. And we shared, I think maybe last time we met, about those two on the road to Emmaus who described what was going on in their heart as Christ broke open to them the Old Testament Scriptures that testified of Him. And remember what they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Was the Word not having its effect upon us? As He opened up the Scriptures to us. That's what we want. That's what we want in our life. And the Scriptures would indicate that there will be one day an evaluation of that of sorts. And it will have to do, it's closely linked, and I, didn't, you know, I can't get off into everything, but it has to do with reward, if you will. Our earthly, our eternal reward, loving the Word of God, believing the Word of God. And then for those who stand and preach and teach the Word of God, it's an eye-opener. It's a real eye-opener regarding responsibility, whoever. Because if we get it wrong, whether it's intentional or not, there's two things that can happen in general. It can be a hindrance to the individual, of course. It can be misleading to a person in their spiritual life. And it will most definitely, if it goes unchecked, it will most definitely hinder the life of the church in some way. So it's serious business, is it not? Christ loves His church. He loves His church. So we look at that. He says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments. What is this? This word that's translated annul. Well, it's the Greek word luo, L-U-O. It means to loosen or to break up. It can mean to destroy or to dissolve, to melt or to... To put off is what the, the Greek ear would have heard over the original word that was used here. Would that be necessarily the intention of a person dealing with the word? Perhaps not. It could just be that they don't know. All right? Or that they know and what they do know is in error because they haven't sought it purely. They haven't sought it wholly. The message, the full message of the word of God is not clear to them and yet they continue to share that we always measure by what scripture gives us and again the emphasis that these people are in the kingdom of god they got the gospel right they got that part right agreed or they wouldn't be in the kingdom of heaven they wouldn't (laughs) but there's more is there not when it comes to teaching and preaching and sharing. And don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not just talking about elders and staff people in the church. I'm talking about every Christian who has and does have a witness of what God has done in their life and sharing that. People get it wrong. They get it wrong. They confuse it with feeling. They confuse it with experience. They can't break away from ritual that they've been taught their whole life that's in error. They can't because it'd be too costly. It would disrupt the family. It would disrupt the extended family to embrace the truth of Scripture. So it's better not just to go there. Just don't, just don't go there. It'll just be me and my family here and what we believe and the rest of it will work itself out. We have to do better than that, don't we? We have to be willing to speak the truth in love. We have to be willing not only to look for, but to take advantage of those opportunities that God brings our way in opening up His blessed Word so that we can share it with other people. We often look to those who would, as we often say, water down or soft coat, if you will, the gospel. And Spurgeon had this in mind in his quote. I think I don't remember if I actually got to that quote last Sunday. It was one of the very last things I did. But I wanted to share it again. It's been two weeks and I see some new faces. Uh, but there was a good quote where Spurgeon was talking about 
the validity of God's Word. He said, I cannot speak out of my whole heart on this theme which is dear to me, but I would stir you all to be instant in season and out of season in telling out the gospel message, especially to repeat such a word as this, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And Spurgeon continues, he says this, and I can just hear him, whisper it in the ear of the sick. Shout it in the corner of the streets. Write it on your tablet. Send it forth from the press. But everywhere, let this be your great motive and warrant. You preach the gospel because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Because it's real. And because it has power in this life. And to deviate from that leads to a number of things. In my study, a couple of words came up. I know you know perhaps what antinomianism is. You're familiar with that word? Antinomianism. Sort of akin to Greek dualism. What does that mean in short? What does that mean? Against the law. Against the law. Okay, flesh that out for me, brother. You do that? <laughs> what would it mean in practical terms? You're right, brother. What would that mean in practical terms? That's part of it. Or having known God, then the way you live isn't that big a deal. That's what it always translates into. Yeah. Another word would be existentialism. What is that? I mean, I've got it here. I just, anybody know what that means? Existentialism. A key word, reality, it's the concept of living in the moment to experience total fulfillment and not being encumbered with rules and regulations. Sound familiar in our society? You know, in the 60s, I grew up, the end of the 60s, certainly the 70s, there was a phrase afoot that said, What? What? What mirrors this right here? Anybody remember existential? What mirrors it? If it feels good, do it. You saw that everywhere. Bumper stickers. Yeah, little things you could put on your notebook even. I dare say I probably had one on there. Feels good, do it. What horrible advice. Would you agree? What horrible, horrible advice to go... Go by the felt emotions, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whether it's more to eat, whether it's more notoriety, whether it's more money, no matter what it is. Nothing new under the sun, as Solomon would say. Nothing new. Perhaps it's called by a different name. They knew about it. We read about it in Judges. You can read about it in chapter 17, verse 6, and again in verse, or chapter 21, verse 5, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a very human thing to do. After all, what do you have to resort to if you don't have the Word of God? You don't have anything else. Nothing else. Yeah. That's right up there with kill them all and let God sort them out, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Heard that before, too. You know, shadow boxing, doing things you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. So what happens when no one wants to be accountable to anyone else? What do we call that? When there's no accountability. Throughout history, there's a word for that. What results? Anarchy. Just what we read about in Judges here in chapter 17 and 25. It even happens in the church. It creeps into the church. This whole mindset. Would you not say that that's why there are so many churches today, the vast majority of churches, and oh, I can just guess at a number, 95% or better, and be accurate, who do not do church discipline. What kind of impact does that have on the church of Jesus Christ? Given the fact that, of course, we're referring to Matthew 18 there, that was the first instruction to the church, to the ecclesia, as the word is there, from Christ Himself, and yet the church as a whole doesn't practice that, or practice 
practices some lower level of that that eventually turns out to be not a practice at all. What does that do to the church? Knowing God's Word, believing God's Word, doing God's Word. Holy living, then, by some, is considered just simply not necessary. And they may say, because, well, Christ is sufficient. We rest in the total sufficiency of Christ, and that's wonderful. I rest in the total sufficiency of Christ, my all-sufficient Savior, His sacrifice. But Christ's Word tells me that my desire, because of that transformation, because of that true transformation, and again, remember, these people are in the kingdom. Because of that transformation, I have a desire, a love, an overwhelming love to serve Him, to know Him, to do His Word. That's the test. That's the key. And the Scriptures today would teach us that people respond to that in different ways. And Paul would tell us that we're all given account of that. We'll all stand. We'll give an account. There'll be some things. What is it? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There'll be some things burned up. There'll be some things that were done that looked good. The world would look at a person and say, that, that guy's got his spiritual and religious act together. Look at what he's did. Look at what he's did. Look at what he's done. Look at what she continues to do. But Christ knows the motivation of the heart. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And it adds up differently. It adds up differently. I think it all comes down to what kind of life do we want to settle for? What kind of life do we want to pursue? Do we truly see ourselves standing before our Christ, giving an account of our life as He says we will? Paul says we can receive a full reward. I believe the writer of Hebrews says the same. We can receive a full reward. What does that mean? Is that something that I selfishly seek? No, it tells us that if we're diligent, we can be pleasing to God. We can. We can be used to the maximum. Think about the things that you're involved in that have to do with sharing the Word of God to be an impact in the life of someone. Do you not want full benefit out of all that? Paul said, I don't want to be like one who's beating the air. That's a good example. Spinning my wheels, if you will, because I'm not fully and wholly given over to the Word of God. I want to know it. I want to be accountable in it. There's victory there. God God promises He will effect His work through us. Through our obedience. He will do that. And that's what the Christian life is about. And we're reminded once again this morning that He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in chapter 7, we, my friends, as believers, as those who have been born again in Christ, we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. He owns our life. And it should be our great joy to give it to Him. To yield unto Him in every aspect. To stand true. To stand under and upon the Word of God. He also talks about those here in this verse 19. Those who teach others. It's that Greek word didasko, and it simply means to teach, can mean to learn. That's what he's talking about. And I mentioned this great responsibility, you know it from James chapter 3, verse 1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur stricter judgment. And I mentioned that scripture this morning to once again focus upon the seriousness of God's word. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to pursue that. What it means is to give it some very, very serious thought and consideration. Very much so. This is important. This has to do with people's lives. This has to do with the life of the church. And we seek Him to teach His Word. How can we do that, brothers, without... First, falling on our face before Him and pleading for Him to open up our heart, to cleanse us so that we can can clearly receive the truth of His Word. You know, you begin to see most clearly when you're studying the Word and preparing to share the Word that if there's anything 
in your heart that's not been dealt with, that's still harbored, harboring, if you will, your own way, your own selfishness, you are not going to hear clearly. You're not. It's akin to having to leave your altar at the gift and go get right with your brother. That would be a good example. And then come back, and then your worship would be acceptable. It's the same in your heart. As we worship God, as I, as I pour over the Word and I'm preparing Him, He's going to first deal with me. That happens every single time. That's, an, that's a constant testimony to me about His veracity and the strength of the Word that has such an impact on a man's heart. And we go there because the Lord meets us there. And He will receive us there. And when we respond in faith, when we respond in repentance, and when it's clear that our desire is to move on in His direction, not our direction, then we begin to see clearly, even, and I should say particularly, specifically regarding preparation in the Word. God will do that. It is never, ever man who does that. Never. It's always God. He's jealous of His Word. 2 Timothy 2.15, you know, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the Word of truth. Paul's exhortation to a young preacher to give attention, to be diligent. It has to be your priority. It has to be the way you weigh out everything in your own personal life. And then as you prepare to share others, you want to labor over that to get it right. We don't always get it right. Right. But in that Hebrew scripture, when he starts talking about, and he just, I love the, the description that's given when it talks about him separating the, the bones and the marrow and the sinew and the word. It means, man, he, he getting down to the truth, causing us through the word to examine our own heart, to open up our heart and let the truth of his word shine on that. That's how you're changed. That, that's that's your, sanct, your continual sanctification process in a nutshell. That's, if you might say, the forensics of it. That's what it is. It's the Word of God changing your heart. That's what it is. Excellent. Yeah, and it's easy to read over those things in Scripture. It really is. It really is. But it's specific to us and to our service to Christ 1 Peter, again, 1 Peter in 3.15, he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, 1 Peter 3.15, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, he says, again, with gentleness and with reverence. And I highlight here this first part, wonderful verse, but he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's first and foremost. What's he saying there? Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. What's that mean? Yeah, and it's talking. It's a it's a recognition. It's it's once again reminding self, if necessary, that hey, he is first and foremost. I've got to check my motives. I've got to check my own agenda here. I've got to make sure that I'm not trying to make the Word say something that I want it to say to give me some kind of personal confirmation. I need to hear His Word. That's what I need. And when we do that, He opens it up. He makes it clear. We sanctify Christ 
again, if you will, as Lord in our hearts, our desires, the seat of our soul, what we want, what's precious to us. How we spend our time, how we spend our money reflects those things. The love we have for others because we understand the great love that He's displayed to us in His mercy and grace first and foremost. First Peter again, lastly here, First Peter 5.2, He just simply gives this command as He's talking to other elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you. And if you read on, you'll understand the way you do that is by knowing the Word and by implementing the Word, being bold and sharing the Word, being faithful, being diligent, loving it, desiring it, just wanting to eat it up, as Isaiah says, to take it in and to let it do its work. I often think about this. It's such a good example, and I marked it. I want to go and read from Jeremiah chapter 20. I think he gives a good the Holy Spirit here through Jeremiah gives a good account, beginning with verse, I believe it's verse 8. Chapter 20 of Jeremiah. Yeah, you could start in 7 actually. He's fussing a little bit, okay? He's fussing, he's human. Oh Lord, you've deceived me and I was deceived. You've overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughing stock. All day long. You recall we're talking about a man here who preached for years and years and years and years without a single convert. Okay. I've become a laughing stock. Every, everyone mocks me. What if this describes your ministry? For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction. Just telling it like it is, but nobody wanted to hear it, right? Because for me, the word of the Lord has resulted and reproach and derision all day long. But if I say I will not remember Him, or speak any more in His name, then my heart, or in my heart, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire. Where have we heard that before? Shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side, Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him, all my trusted friends watching for my fall. They say perhaps he will, he, he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. I tell you, when you're in the midst of the battle for preaching the Word and teaching the Word, you better be sincere. You better be trusting in Christ direction, Christ's provision alone because there will be difficulty. can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. Light and dark. It's going to happen. Salt and light. And we ought to know and understand that and receive that. And Jeremiah certainly experienced that. But the point being, he could not hold it down when he said, I'm just overcome with the, with the whole physicality here and the way people treat me and all the bad things that happened to him. You know, throw him in a hole and leave him there forever. All these things were happening to him. But it didn't affect the truth of God's Word in his heart. He knew. He said, I could be quiet. I could be silenced. I could silence myself. But he said, I can't. I can't do it. Because I know deep down... Israel needs to hear this. First and foremost, I know this is what God has told me to do. I must do it. And it's the only hope. If people are going to turn, if lives are going to be saved forever, eternally, this is what they must hear. Because he believed the Word of God. He believed it. So, we continue looking at the verse. So why this language about the least and the great here? As I've said, it's not referring to a loss of salvation. It's talking about on both counts here, folks who are in the kingdom. Blessing, he says, reward, fruitfulness, joy, usefulness will all be sacrificed to the extent that we are disobedient. We can hinder our reward. That's not the focal point. The focal point is we might damage somebody else. We might actually be the point of hindrance in a church, in a fellowship. 
That's a very real scenario, right? Absolutely. It can happen. And you can mark 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15 if you want to read. I think Colossians 3, verse 24 would shed some light onto that. I won't read those, but if you want to mark those, do so. 2 John, verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Thank you, Mary. You may receive a full reward. So, there it is. You can receive less than a full reward. Does that get anybody's attention this morning about their life and the diligence that they place upon Scripture and service and so forth? It's good for us every now and then to be reminded that there is an accounting. And it would be considered, I trust you would consider it a blessing this morning if the Word of the Lord lays that on our heart once again and it brings it to mind. You know, I think about that when we do the Lord's Supper every month. That's instituted for the church for that purpose because we examine ourselves, do we not? We follow that instruction. We examine ourselves, not just before we give attention to Christ's sacrifice and so forth, but that self-examination is important. Very important for us as we move on in our ministry. It can be great. But notice he uses here the word involves keeping or it involves doing, keeping the teaching and so forth. My mind went to Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 and I immediately flipped my Bible and went to Ezra and I wrote down, I started looking at that verse and I looked at Nehemiah 8 verses 1 through 8. We'll look at those in a minute. And then when I went back to my commentaries, well, they had gone to Ezra too. So I felt good about that. (laughs) That's always a good thing. But I love this because it says, it says in, in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach His statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now right here, you've got it laid out. You've got the design in this one simple verse. What did he have to do first? What was his commitment? To study. Study to sow thyself proof. Yeah, he was to study. And he was then to, having known the Word, having believed the Word, what do you do next? You do it. If you're going to teach it, and you've got to practice it. It has to typify. It has to describe you. You can't be a, a contradiction. You can't. Now let's just face it. Every preacher, every teacher is subject to what? Some type of contradiction, aren't they? Well, what does the Bible tell us when we fail? What does it tell us to do? Is it any different for people who teach the Word than for any other Christian out here? What do we do? You repent. What's often involved in that repentance? What kind of actions usually have to be taken? Depends on the situation, but just give me an idea. Does everything have to be confessed publicly? No. Which ones are confessed publicly? Say it again. Sins that are done publicly. Okay. What about a sin that you know is having an impact on the church, but nobody else knows about it but you? You think that's possible? Depends on how much responsibility you have. Ask David. Ask him. Depends on how much. Well... The point is, do we warm up to that? Do we warm up to this part of God's Word that talks to us about repentance, that talks to us about open confession if necessary, that causes us to change the way we do things so that people can look at our life and say, you know, this, this person is, they're not perfect, but they're given over. They are. What describes their life, what typifies their life is a love and a desire for Christ and a desire to be true to His Word. God will honor that. God will bless that. And He will strengthen us in that. We study His Word. We practice it. And then 
in this one simple verse from Ezra 7.10, he says, then we can teach it. Then we can do that. And once again, no caveat here. This is to people who share the Word of God. People with a testimony. People who claim Christ. People who claim they can speak for Him to share those truths with others. Again, don't just think in terms of just preachers, just teachers, just ordained people in that regard. This is a good standard for everyone. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse 10, he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorted and encouraging and imploring each one each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. This is how it works out. This is it in a nutshell as Paul talks to the Thessalonians there. Talking about their life and their example. So it's not to be a distraction, not to be a contradiction. You've heard it from the pulpit several times. You know, that is the distinction. It's always the life. Life lived. First Timothy 4, chapter 11, he says, Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, Timothy, but rather speech, conduct, or your conduct, love, and faith, and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. So this is our desire. And it's the command for us. It's certainly the heartfelt desire of everyone who publicly preaches and teaches. But I'm sharing with you this morning to those who preach and teach privately and who share. Same, same responsibility. Even though it's just one-on-one. You want to be an impact in somebody's life about Christ, you can't be a distraction. You can't be a contradiction. It's not an excuse for people but they'll use it as an excuse. They certainly will. They'll, I, I know some who claim, I can't come to church because it's full of hypocrites. I can't come to church because of this really bad example that I was subjected to of someone who was in charge, a, a, a person who had authority in the church, and yet they were so disappointing, they turned out to be such a phony, and now the, Satan himself has taken that experience in that person's life, often a young person's life, and caused them to adopt another road, another pathway to take themselves out of the church, out from under the Word of God. Because somebody might truly be a phony. They might truly be that, or they were really off their game, and yet they have too much pride to go back and do damage control with the lives that they've affected. We will all give an account of those kinds of things. We will. Those are serious things. Very serious. Well, let's move on. Timothy here. <clears throat> One other word before I move on from 1 Timothy 4, chapter, or verses 11 and 12. When he says teach these things, <clears throat> just a word about what things he's talking about. And if you were to go back and look in the first three or four verses that precede that, starting around verse 5, you'd see that he's talking about sound doctrine. He mentions that. And then he's talking about godliness. And then he's talking specifically about the gospel. So when he says these things, prescribe and teach these things, that's what he's talking about. The sound doctrine, the, the example of godliness, and the gospel itself. Get it right. Be an example. Trust God to do His work in and through you. He will do that. He will do that. I included here as we're coming down to the end just a little bit of a of a summary regarding Matthew chapter five, verses seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen because they all deal with the word in some fashion. But just a little bit as a way of reminder. First would be that the thrust of the New Testament epistles we understand shows that Jesus is king of God's moral law. That's what he was talking about. Here, every principle and standard taught in the Sermon on the Mount 
and we've already discovered and will continue to discover as we get through it, is also taught in the epistles. You'll see those things linked up. There's a paradox with the law being fulfilled and done away with, yet we're still to obey it. It remains our moral guide. That part of the law has not disappeared. Paul talked about deal, 5, 6, 7 in Romans. The ceremonial and judicial law we shared a couple of lessons ago, uh, these requirements of the law have come to those in Christ are no longer under the ultimate penalty of the law, but are far from being free, if you will, of its requirement for righteousness. Ten Commandments hasn't gone away. Hasn't gone away. In Romans 10.4, we read, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And he's talking about believing Christ and the truth of the Gospel. Also, Galatians 5.18, he would remind us that he says, but if you are led by the Spirit under the law. And then in 3.24 of Galatians, did I say Romans or Galatians on that 5.18? It's Galatians, okay. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, a verse you know. It's our tutor to lead us to Christ. We may be justified by faith. Paul would say, hey, if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know that I messed up, Right? It tells me. It convicts me. And therefore, it's good. It's a good thing. And we have to remember that in our lives, do we not? When we get the rod of correction, and sometimes it may be as gentle as, the, as our Heavenly Father saying, now wait a minute, you need to read this, and we read it and we say, hmm, He's talking about me. Wow, that was really the desire of my heart. The Word has made that clear to me. That is a wonderful thing, my friend. That is a testimony to you about God being your Heavenly Father and treating you like His child. That's what that's about. You agree with that? We're going to fall down on our face and give thanks for a spanking, if you will, if that's what it amounts to, because it's a description of His love and faithfulness to us to change us and to cause us to stay, to stay away from certain destruction, a greater condemnation, a greater liability, if you will, in our life and in the lives of others, of people that we have an impact and effect upon. Whenever a Christian looks at God's moral laws, this is a quote from Dr. MacArthur, whenever a Christian looks at God's moral law with humility, meekness, and a sincere desire for righteousness, the law will invariably point him to Christ. And he adds, as it was always intended to do. It's easy for us to forget that the Old Testament is about Christ. The Word is about Him. That's why Jesus could say, hey, if you, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he, he spoke about me. He talked about me. It's about me. That's what he's saying. So in Romans, Paul tells us, he says, So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even in his state, even in understanding grace, dare say like nobody understood it then, he understood it. But he also understood and loved and had great affection for the law of God. He saw it for what it was. It teaches us the truth. He would say, as he did, there's no salvation in it. It doesn't provide salvation, but it takes us to our point of need. That's what it, what it does. It takes us to that point of recognition, to showing us where we fall short. And then we understand and see clearly the grace of God, even from the Old Testament, the grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ and in His faithfulness. Romans 8, 1-4, through 4, Therefore there is no doubt, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. For what the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you. Wow. 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law, if you will, has been fulfilled in us individually as believers. And Paul would go on in chapter 7 of Romans and talk specifically about his newfound relationship and the grace of Christ uh, stacked up against the law and the requirement of God. I won't go there and read that. We're going to run out of time if I do. But let's look at verse. I've only got about 10 minutes maybe to do that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Because this, this, is, a, this is an attention getter too, okay? Where he says, Christ, where he says, I say unto you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? He obviously had a broader group that he's talking to there. What is he talking about? Wow. And what did that mean then? Exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Now you're talking about a culture, a religious culture, a society that looked upon these people, the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, they were the pinnacle. They were the devout. Surely, they were right with God. Surely. But God is the discerner of the heart, is He not? I was looking at work in the Tyndall New Testament commentary, some work from R.T. France, and he states the following regarding what it means to exceed, if you will, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. A simple statement, he says, what is required is a greater righteousness, a relationship of love and obedience to God, which is more than a literal observance of regulations. You may read that and think, well, yeah, that that makes sense. But then I begin to think about people that I've come in contact with who are resting on the very opposite of that. I used to have a Catholic neighbor that I loved. He was a great neighbor. And I talked to him one time and our conversation came around and God's doing about salvation and what our hope was in and trust. And as I laid it out, he listened. He said, well, I've already gone to the priest and he's already gone on my behalf. He's done this and done that. And I'm trying to, to, to bring, bring the truth of the Word back around to know, my friend, what have you done? How, you know, have you examined your own heart? Do you understand what Christ did for you? Didn't want to hear it. It was, so, it was like a quick and dirty thing for him to say, oh, no, the priest has already done that. No, there's, there's no, there's only one mediator. I went there, got off in the Mary a little bit. And just, you know, deception. Deception. Do we love Him? Do we open up our heart to Him? If we do, He will see to it. It will be a natural flow, if you will, for our righteousness which in effect is, make no mistake about it, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness. It will be evident that it exceeds anything that's akin to just ritual. It'll be real. It won't be just a thing done, regardless of how strongly you believe about that ritual. It will be the result of a person who has looked within their heart, and they know that they stand before God guilty, and the Word has brought to bear on their heart what's required. A true, a faithful repentance. And that's what our hope is in. It's in the finished work of Christ, and the Word would declare that nobody does that for us. Each person will give an account of their own. We must respond to God. We must do that as individuals. So this quality of righteousness that we're talking about, again, that is fully bought and purchased, paid for, made available through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ does three things. It fulfills the law of the prophets. It fulfills that. That's what Paul says and teaches and he goes to great lengths to, to talk about it particularly in Romans. It exposes the legalism of the scribes and any religious group who claim to be some cog in that wheel. It's all the work of the sacrifice of Christ. And it exposes the superficial piety of the Pharisees in this case, or in our day and age, anybody 
who's resting upon their own works, their own religiosity or whatever, to make themselves acceptable in the eyes of God. Same thing now as it was then, just by a different name perhaps. It's legalism. A quick definition of legalism, it's the literal and unchanging application of the law purely as regulation. That's what it is. There's no salvation in that. A lot of knowledge, a lot of good things can come out of that, that knowledge. It's true. But it's Christ's work. It's the work of Christ within us that gives us the strength to live out the Word of God, whether it's the law, it's the Ten Commandments, or it's the teaching of the apostles, whatever it is. It's the strength of Christ and Christ alone. It's His mercy. It's His grace. The Old Testament rules and regulations are never to be considered invalid Some have fulfilled their role. Others will be reinterpreted by Christ in His ministry, and they were in His teaching. He did, as we've already studied. He came not to abolish, but to do what? To fulfill, to to bring full knowledge and understanding about the law and so forth. We made that clear when we were going through that. Galatians 3.24 Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. I read that verse. So that we must, or that we may be justified by faith. Let's continue on with the next three verses. Verse 25, he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither free man. There is neither male nor free male or f- female. Ooh. For you, I created a whole different class of people there. For you, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Listen to this and hear it as they would have heard it. What? Gentile? You're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. How could they forget that Abraham was to be a blessing to all nations? Not just them. And you're an heir. Why? Because of Christ. Why Christ? Because He was the fulfillment, the sacrifice of Christ. We're done with this. And from what I read... This has been, especially these last three or four verses, has been to prepare us for what's to come as we pick up in verse 21, which we'll do next week. And the subtitle there over my 21 here in my MacArthur New Testament Bible, is, uh, or my MacArthur Study Bible rather, is the word murder. Okay? And then the word adultery, and then the word divorce, and then about oaths and then retaliation, and then love, and then charitable deeds. So that's where we're going in our study as we continue.